Amen. Good morning, everybody. What a joy it is to be together in some way, shape, or form today. It's been so good for my soul to just be able to sing songs that remind me of Christ's love and to uh, hear the scripture read by Daniel has already just stirred my hearts and affections for Christ this morning. And I pray that it does the same for you, that it just kind of grows your faith and, and moves you in love and, and persuades you of the love that God has for you as we remind ourselves of that from the scriptures today. My name is Ross and I'm one of the members of the preaching and pastoral team here at the Austin Stone. And if you have a Bible in front of you, 2 Timothy 3 is where we're gonna spend the bulk of our time today. Ordinarily, we like to preach right through books of the Bible and we've been doing that in the Gospel of Matthew for more than a year. You see, we believe the scriptures are true and authoritative, which is gonna be the topic today. And so ordinarily, we're more than happy to just go verse by verse through the scriptures and to see what the Lord has to say to us through that means. But occasionally, we do also break away and focus on a series or a topic that we think the Lord has laid on our hearts for the edification of the saints here at the Austin Stone. And so we'll typically do that in the new year, and then we'll typically do that as well in the fall, especially as students roll back into life at UT. And so today, that's what we do. We begin a new series a six-week series simply titled Unique. Uh, The premise is simple, it's this. Christianity contains some beliefs or truth claims that are actually unique. They are unlike those of any other worldview or belief system. And those claims or beliefs, when rightly adhered to, ought to create a unique, a distinct, a set-apart sort of people. See, Christians should be different from the world because we believe differently to the world. And so the point in this series is not simply to just do an apologetic, to not simply just prop up our beliefs in a neat system that we can't pull apart, but rather to press in and to pastorally and carefully assess how we can better live up to the unique beliefs that we already hold. You see, in a world that's desperately trying to find identity and trying to do that through uniqueness and individuality, what if Christians actually displayed a truly different, set-apart, unique identity, not in individuality, but in collective adherence to the ancient teachings of our king, that ancient teachings that has been adhered to by billions of people across millennia. What if our true identity would not be found in setting ourselves aside from that, but actually joining in right adherence to that? And so in this series, we are simply asking, How can our unique beliefs, or some of them anyway, we don't have enough time to get through all of them, but how can our unique beliefs forge us into the kind of unique people we are supposed to be in the world? And so I hope and pray that you'll join us over the next six weeks as we look at some of the different unique truth claims in Christianity. Today, we're gonna be talking about Christianity's unique view of revealed authority. 
uh, revealed authority. And when I say authority, I'm not speaking specifically about an authority that we hold. That's an interesting topic for another day. I'm not speaking specifically to systems or structures of authority that we encounter in the world. The scripture teach us, uh, teaches us about how we are to um, uh, interact with those as well. What we're talking about today though, when we say authority, is the authority of absolute truth that we submit to. What is our plumb line of knowing what is true and what is false? You see, Christians believe that there is a right and set standard of truth which is external to ourselves. It's discoverable by us, but it's external to us, and it has the trustworthiness, it has the power, and it has the subsequent right to command and instruct both our belief, right belief, and action, right action as a result of belief. That is what biblical authority is. The systematic theologians who study in this field define it this way, that authority is the right to command belief and action. Authority is the right to command belief, how you think, what you believe, and action how you behave as a result of how you think and what you believe. Now you might go, I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like that notion of authority. You, you can't tell me what to do. My, my five-year-old Katie agrees with you, right? She's going like, you're not the boss of me. Kinda am, right? And so own the place in which you live, own the food in which you eat. Um, and so there's an authority that comes along with that where I have a certain right, right? Now it's not absolute, but I have a right to kind of shape thought and, and, and belief and action in our home. Here's the kind of person that I want you to be. But the truth is, friends, all of us submit to an authority of some sorts, regardless of what form or sort of external authority structures and figures we live under or choose to rebel against. We all, everyone, no one escapes this, live beneath the authority of a set of truth claims, a set of beliefs that determine our values and ultimately our ethic, what we see as righteous and unrighteous action in the world. We all adhere to a mode of thought that sets, us, uh, sets that for us. It has authority over us. The only question is, where are you getting those claims of truth that you submit to? Everyone submits to the authority of what they believe to be truth. Everyone submits to the authority of what they believe to be truth. And so the question isn't, do I submit to the authority of a truth claim? The question is only which truth claims, how reliable are they, and where do they come from? There isn't a person alive who escapes this. Even the relativist, right? And you don't really get fully-fledged, ardent relativists anymore because it's a self-defeating argument. But many of us have relativistic thoughts in our truth claims and in our modes of ethic and, and philosophy, right? But even the relativist who doesn't believe in an objective truth statement will hold up the authority of a set of beliefs known as relativism as a truth construct from which they command their own belief and action. It has authority over their thoughts and it has authority over their action. They believe that my truth and your truth 
are both true, which is what? A truth construct, <laughs> which has authority over them. It's elevated above other truth constructs that determines that they believe that and behave accordingly. Do you guys see this? We, we all give into it all the time and we're being shaped by things that we're giving authority in our lives and we would do well to open our eyes and to be sober in our thinking and saying, okay, what is determining what is true in our lives? Because we all do it, right? We've got some new neighbors and Sue and I just love them. They are wonderful. Um, they are fun and smart and we, we enjoy hanging out with them. Um, but they discovered somehow, even before we hung out with them, that um, I'm a pastor, right? And so I've become an object of um, intense interest and curiosity for them because they've got no idea what to do with me. They're like, I thought you were kind of cool, bro, but now you're like this antiquated <laughs> belief system guy. And so the first time we went over, it was like three minutes in to the meal and they started peppering with questions. And the first one was like, hey, Rusty, are you like a Bible Christian though? Like, do you believe the Bible? And, and, the, and the underlying premise behind that question was like, please tell us you're not one of those. Please tell us you're one of the cool Christians that, that doesn't really see the Bible as authoritative anymore. And I was like, yeah, I believe it's true. I believe it gives me everything that I need for life and for godliness. I, I believe that it's beautiful um, and, and, and I love reading it and I love shaping my worldview in accordance with what the Bible teaches me. Um, and the husband straight away said, well, we don't. I said, I mean, that's fine. I mean, I, I understand that. He said, we just can't be that narrow. And that's where I started to press back. I was like, but you're as narrow as me. So in your insistence that it cannot be true, you're rejecting a set of truth claims that you see as untrue to adhere to another set of truth claims. So he said, no, no, I see that, but I just live to a set of truth claims that is superior. So I said, well, what, is this, what, is, what are those truth claims? He said, we just wanna be nice to everybody. I said, I like that as an ethic. It's actually very similar to a biblical ethic, which says, do unto others as you'd have them do to yourself. So, so I get that. My question is, where did you get that ethic. And they were like, what do you mean? I was like, well, who tells you that's the right way to live? What, what do you do to people who aren't nice? Do you continue to be nice to them even when they aren't nice to you? And why? Because from a purely evolutionary standpoint, that makes no sense, right? You should cut your losses and run and just advance the species. But this kind of love your neighbor stuff, that's an ethic from somewhere else. Where did you get that from? And over time, we started speaking about what has shaped their worldview and it turns out they have an authority of belief, a different one to the one that I have, but they have an authority, something that they hold to that says this is true, therefore this is what I must believe, therefore this is how I must behave. And it's been wonderful for our conversations for me to be able to go like, I've got one of those too, right? It's different to yours because Christians have a different standard of what authority is. You see, Christians submit to the authority of God's revealed truth in the Bible. That's what we believe the Bible is. It's God's revelation of himself. It's a pulling back of a curtain saying, here I am, this is what I am like, and it comes from him. Now listen, I know you might be new to the church or new to the faith, and you might be like, oh man, have I joined a Bible-bashing church? No, but you have joined a Bible-believing one. And I know this seems old-fashioned and ancient and in some modes of thought archaic, but it's true. Christians ought to be Bible believers. 
even though the research that is emerging shows that it is increasingly rare for even evangelical Christians to believe in biblical authority. The, the, the tone is shifting even amongst those of the faith. There was a study released this week, thousands of data points fascinating on the state of theology and the state of the church. It showed that 16%, this, is, this blows my mind, 16% of self-professed evangelicals, now evangelical is not a voting block, friends, I know it's been made that thing, but the term evangelical is actually framed and shaped by a set of beliefs that people adhere to, and the authority of the scriptures is one of those beliefs. So people have come and said, yes, I'm an evangelical, right? Which is supposed to mean I believe the Bible is true. And yet 16% of self-professed evangelicals didn't fully agree with the statement that the Bible is 100% reliable in all that it teaches. Uh, nearly one in five who would say, I adhere to the evangelical creed, don't adhere to the evangelical creed. Uh, when it came in the same study to the statement that said that the Bible contains somewhat helpful ancient myths and stories, but isn't literally true, right? 19% of evangelicals and nearly 50% of professing believers agreed with that statement. Well, the Bible's interesting. It's just not reliable. It's just not authoritative. It's just not true. Friends, this is madness. And it starts to reveal some of the weaknesses of our spiritual formation and starts to show why we are so easily and readily influenced by ideology rather than by revealed truth. We are supposed to be people of the book and yet we cannot even agree over what the book is. Now friends, listen, for us at the stone, if you're new to the church, you should know this. I don't wanna disappoint you later on. You need to know this coming in, right? We are people of the book. This is a big deal for us. We are passionate about biblical authority. If you go on our website, you'll see that we have eight core convictions. And number one is we are ruled by, you see the authoritative language, ruled by God's word. Now, here's how we expound upon that. Let me just read this to you. It's important. You, you know, you might just come along because you heard the new worship album. You think, wow, this might be a great church, but this is important for you to know that, that if you're gonna be part of this community, here's what we believe. We say, we are ruled by the living word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. We believe that the Bible is the word of God, fully inspired and without error in the original manuscripts, written by men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's massive, we're gonna dwell there today. And that it has supreme, what? Authority. Remember, authority is the right to, to determine uh, uh, belief and action. And this has extreme, uh, supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. It goes on. There is no substitute for it. God's word is absolutely trustworthy and guides all we believe and do. We love and cherish God's word for it nourishes us daily and instructs us on all things necessary for salvation, life, and righteousness. Where the Bible speaks, God speaks. And where God speaks, we trust and we obey. <laughs> now you might ask, okay, well, pff, why? 
Uh, why do we do that? Uh, why do we trust the Bible and give it that measure of authority in our lives? Well, I don't have time today, unfortunately, to do a full apologetic on the trustworthiness of the Scriptures, although that would be helpful. I rather wanted to just root us in one text today and let the Bible speak about itself for a little bit and show us three things about the Bible's authority today. Uh, I wanna look at the source of the scripture's authority, where is it from, right? Because that gives it authority because where something is from tells us how reliable it is. I know not anymore, but we used to believe that reliability and authority came from um, having an affirmed um, and testable knowledge of a subject. Now it's just clout score, right? Now it's just virality, Um, but it used to be authority was linked to knowledge. And if we tie back the scripture to say, well, where does it come from? It comes from the one with all knowledge, therefore it's reliable and authoritative. Secondly, the salvific wisdom of the scripture's authority, it makes us wise for salvation. And thirdly, the sanctifying effect of the scripture's authority, it changes us, makes us more like Christ. So look with me very briefly in the time I have remaining at 2 Timothy 3.14. Let me read that text to you again and then we'll look at those three things. Paul writing to young Timothy and says, as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it and from how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, if you know Paul's writings to Timothy, you know the character of Timothy, you know that Timothy's faith has been shaped by some incredible people, including Paul. He's had an apostolic witness come and share the sacred writings with him. But who shaped the early life of Timothy? His mom and his grandmother, right? And so, so often throughout church history, these sacred texts and the authority thereof passed down generation to generation through faithful women serving in their spheres of influence by rightly handling the word of truth and teaching others to rightly handle the word of truth. These sacred writings, what are they? They are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. All scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God, that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All right, the source of the scripture's authority. Why do we say it is authoritative? Why do we say it is trustworthy? Well, it's because of where it comes from. Paul says something fascinating here. He says, all scripture is God-breathed. Now, listen, I know maybe you read the Da Vinci Code, and I know you've understood some conspiracy theories about lost books, but when he refers to all of Scripture, he's referring at least to the Old Testament, which was well accepted and canonized by that point, and there was a recognition within the New Testament itself that some of the new writings that were going uh, around in that generation carried the authority of Scripture. If you don't believe me, go check out 1 Timothy 5.18, or go check out 2 Peter 3.15 to 16, in which Peter himself says that the writings of Paul are like the scriptures in other ways. And so there is an authority that is already developing around a canon in the first century there. And he says, 
all of that that we, con- that we conclude are the sacred scriptures, all of them are breathed out by God. Paul uses a word here that had never been used before in the Greek lexicon, in scripture, or in Greek popular culture. He makes up a word, some believe, because he's going like, there's nothing like this. There's nothing like, it's like God breathed and a book was born. He has to come up with a new word in order to describe the level of authority that the Bible has. It's the very breath, the very words of God himself. See, friends, the idea is that although the Bible is complex and nuanced and made up of 66 different books written by dozens of authors across thousands of years through a variety of genres. It was God in every instance who was breathing his own revelatory life into them. Here's how I think of it. Just as God spoke creation into being, that authority said, let there be light. And there was light, with that same breath, with that same power, with that same authority, he spoke his word into the world through human scribes. You see, the scriptures are authoritative because it is through them that God reveals himself to us. And so friends, we ought to have a reverence and a respect and a curiosity and an intrigue and a deep desire to engage with the scriptures if we believe their source. This is God's breath to us available today. And if you wanna hear God speak, my friend Tony Marito always says, you have gotta open his mouth, right? Let him speak, let his breath appear to us afresh today. Now obviously God reveals himself in other ways. Uh, 100%, he, he uses nature and art and beauty and other people and the spiritual gifts. But the clearest way that we know that he has revealed who he is to himself is through his word, which reveals the manifestation of his son. Now friends, just briefly today, I don't have time to do a full on apologetic, but I know some of you will still be going like, Yeah, I get that, but that's still kind of a circular argument. It's the Bible proving the Bible for itself. Um, I know some of you struggle believing in the authority of this thing as is borne out in the data and in my own pastoral experience. Many of us are struggling to read this and allowing it to have authority in our life. So let me just quickly walk you through some of the attributes of scripture that I believe shows them to be God-breathed. I'll just give you seven. Today, right? The first one is the scripture's antiquity, its ancientness, the fact that it's a book of origins, that it goes right back to the beginning, covering all that we need to know about human history. The 17th century pastor Thomas Watson said, the gray hairs of scripture make it venerable, right? Make it trustworthy, make it something that we should look to. In other words, it isn't a late or modern addition to humanity, but rather a record of God's revelation from the beginning. I love that that's how it starts, in the beginning. Do I need to know anything before then? Nope, in the beginning, right? And how it ends? Well, this is how it'll be forever. Do I need to know any more? Nope, this is what you need to know about God and yourself and how those two things interact and relate through salvation. Secondly, uh, they're trustworthy because of their miraculous preservation. Can you believe we still have this thing today? Do you know what it's been through to get here? Uh, Though the church and the scriptures that formed and shaped and kept the church have experienced massive and sometimes violent opposition, somehow 
They've been spared and kept, and they're available for us today in any number of translations, right? So that they can sit next to our bed and not be read. No, they've been spared for us through the generations, through remarkable things. Thirdly, the profundity of their content. <laughs> what they teach is not what man would make up if they were looking to just create a system of religious control. I mean, think about it. You wouldn't just, if you're just trying to come up with a narrative to control the world, the gospel wouldn't be it. It wouldn't be that, that power rests in servanthood. It wouldn't be that the God of the universe came to save wretched humans and to give them grace and mercy and freedom and joy and delight. It would be like, oh no, the Pope or the emperor or someone is in charge and you, you submit yourself to them. But that's not the message of the scriptures. I'll just read this quote briefly from Thomas Watson because it kind of speaks for itself. He says, the mystery of scripture is so abstruse and profound that no man or angel could have known it had it not been divinely revealed. That eternity should be born, that he who thunders in the heavens should cry in the cradle, that the prince of life should die, that the Lord of glory would be put to shame, that sins should be punished to the full, yet pardoned to the full. Who could ever have conceived of such a mystery had not the scripture revealed it to us? Fourth one, the, the reliability of the prophetic predictions. The Bible is incredible at making predictions and then seeing them get fulfilled hundreds of years later in remarkable detail. The rise and fall of nations, the coming and going of kings, the arrival life and sacrificial death and uh, victorious resurrection of our Savior, hundreds of them. Fifth, the unity of their content. I often have people come to me and go like, what do you do with the contradictions of the Bible? And I say, well, which ones? And people are normally able to pull out two or three that seem contradictory. And I go like, out of all of this, firstly, those aren't contradicted as arguments to them, but out of all of this, across thousands of years, you've got two or three? That is evidence to believe the Bible. The unity of this thing is unbelievable. Sixth one, the impartiality of its contributors. If the Bible was put together by people trying to gain control over other people, then they really ought to have done a better job of protecting their own reputations. <laughs> These are the so-called good guys, and what does the Bible do? Reveals their sin and their failings to everybody. People who are trying to gain control wouldn't do that. Peter would have gone, guys, we've got to leave some of that stuff out, right? The denial, that wasn't my best day. That, that thing's got to go, right? David's like, guys, the Bathsheba story, like, come on. Uh, but those things remain in there. Why? They're not about those men. It's the revelation of God and how he interacts with those men. Seventh, uh, sorry, yeah, seventh, their efficacy in the hearts of people. This is a powerful point, something I see as a pastor to this day. Why does this book continue to change people's lives? Why? I see it all the time. My favorite tactic as a pastor when someone comes like, I need to grow in faith, you know what I say? Let's read the Bible together. And we pick a book of the Bible and we read it together. And you know what I see so many times? It changes people. Why? It's breathed out by God. Friends, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And so we must submit ourselves to what he says. I'm running out of time, but this is why we say with the psalmist, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, and the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It is God-breathed. Friends, some of you have become flippant with the word of God. We don't read it. We don't submit to its authority. We would if we believed it was breathed out by him, spoken by him, and will endure and last forever because of him. Let us approach it with humility, unending curiosity, and ongoing submission to its authority. All right, secondly, let us consider the salvific wisdom of the scripture's authority. Friends, there are many things that the Bible teaches us about, many, many things, but I cannot help but think that sometimes we treat it as something that it doesn't claim to be primarily about, right? I hear what seem like helpful phrases said of the scriptures all the time that make me wince, right? We make it a roadmap for life. Now, there's some maps in here, but unless you want to go to Galilee or follow Paul's second missionary journey, they're not all that helpful, right? It's like, should I work at Dell or should I take a job at Apple? Like, it, it doesn't have that plot line in here. Now, it does have shared wisdom and it does have everything we need for life and godliness, but it's not actually a roadmap for our life. It is a revelation of the life of God in the life of the world. Some people say it's an instruction manual for successful living, and I go like, <laughs> good luck with some sections of the Old Testament. Um, some use it as some sort of religious prop, which functions as little more than some kind of sacred lucky charm. We put our hands on it and swear by it as if in this bound up uh, piece of uh, compressed wood there, there is something sacred in the physical form of it itself. It's, it never claims to be those things. Paul says back in verse 15 that one of the things the Bible does is makes you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible says many things in many different modes but it has one primary theme that runs through all of it and binds it all together and holds it all as coherent. This theme has to do with salvation, which we will speak about in week five, but it's the golden thread that ties all the scripture together in the person and work of our wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. Every text, every text, you can go where you like, every text in all of scripture is predictive, or preparatory, or reflective, or resultant of Christ and his work in the world. This is why when Christ explained to his hearers why they weren't getting any life out of the scriptures that they were reading, he said in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You think that these are salvific in and of themselves. That's not the point. He says, and it is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is clear, friends. The scriptures don't save you, but they contain the answer for who will. This is why when the resurrected Christ taught a Bible study um, on the Emmaus Road, his method was this. Look at Luke 24. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He's like, oh, you wanna understand Moses? You wanna understand the law? Well, it speaks of the need for this great atoning sacrifice, which is me. You wanna understand the prophets? The, they, they speak of the son of David who will come and bring restoration to Israel. It's me. And he interprets the scriptures rightly for them. And you know what Luke 24 tells us? This is what I love. Their hearts were strangely moved and warmed because suddenly the breath of God came to life in front of them. Friends, if we read the Bible and it doesn't make us 
hugely convicted of our need for a savior because of our own sin and rebellion. And it doesn't make us totally convinced of the qualification of that savior and the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if it doesn't comfort us with the love and the mercy of that savior, which cannot be taken from us, and if it doesn't draw us into the life that that savior offers us for the expansion of his kingdom, well then we are missing the authority of the scriptures and the purpose for which they were given to us to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And friends, if the spirit doesn't awaken us to that, then none of the rest of it will make sense at all. Are the scriptures authoritative in your life and are they making you wise for salvation? Is it causing you to run to Christ to trust in him, to lean on him, and to follow him in obedience. If not, then we're actually rejecting its authority. Last one, and I'll get out of your hair this morning. I've, I've used up my time and then some, but thirdly, look at the sanctifying effect of the scripture's authority. Look back in Paul's letter to Timothy one last time. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, look at how, uh, how humbling that language is. Now, teaching, that suggests we don't know everything we need to know. We need a teacher. Reproof, that means rebuke. It means we're wrong on some stuff and the Bible's gonna come and tell us that. Correction, it's gonna show us some better paths than the ones that we could come up with ourselves and we need to follow them. Training in righteousness, it means we need training. We're unrighteously unfit, right? And so we need training. This is spiritual formation and shaping to make us more like Christ. All of these actually require community and all of these require humility. It speaks of a group of people holding the scriptures up as authoritative and saying, this is the revealed word of God. It is right. And where I disagree, I am wrong. <laughs> that can be a painful thing. So often when I'm reading the Bible, I really do feel that it is reading me. And it has a painful but wonderful sanctifying effect upon me. That's why the writer to the Hebrews says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's sharp, friends, if we'll let it be. Listen, I worry that many of us want the Christ that the scriptures reveal but we are sort of embarrassed by the very scriptures that reveal him to us. And we are unwilling to submit to the authority that they carry in our lives. Some of us just want our ethic and our morality shaped by the world because it means acceptance. And these parts in the Bible that disagree with that, we just find ways around them and disagree with them. No, no, friends, it's the revealed word. It's the revealed word. It's right. We're wrong. I also worry that in cultural Christianity in the West, many of us are missing the big outcomes of sanctification that the scriptures speak of. Paul says that we would be complete, equipped for every good 
work. Friends, listen to me, please. If we read the Bible for some sort of holier than thou, set apart smugness and rightness, and it doesn't drive us towards the works of God that he has prepared for us before the foundations of the world, then we aren't submitting to the authority of the Bible that we read. I love what Pastor Albert Tate said. He said, put down your bias and pick up your Bible. (laughs) So many of us can't even see the words of the scripture through our biases and ideologies and smugness and self-righteousness. Love what N.T. Wright said in his book, Simply Christian. He said, the Bible is there to enable God's people to be equipped to do God's work in God's world not to give them an excuse to sit back smugly knowing they possess all of God's truth. Don't be a Bible basher, be a Bible believer. Don't use it to lord over other people, have it lord over you, which will tell you how to love other people. If all of our reading doesn't make us more loving, more kind, more merciful, more just, well then friends, I don't think we're reading it right yet. People of the book ought to be increasingly like the hero of the book. And the manifestation of our reading to the world ought to be Christ-like humility and biblical service through good deeds because that is what the scripture says it prepares us for. All right. We have this unique view of a God-breathed book that makes us wise for salvation, gives us hope for genuine sanctification and service. It has authority over us. It has the right to command belief and action. Let us be people of the book. I have some practical homework for you this week, all right? If you aren't reading the Bible regularly, start. It's easier than it's ever, ever, ever been. Download the Bible app. Start a plan, start a simple one, start a three-day plan. Don't pick with like 15 times through the scriptures in the next six months, go. No, start a simple one and finish it and then start another one. If you struggle with reading, download an audio Bible, listen to it, let the word of God be spoken over you. Ask a friend to start reading a book of the Bible with you. Go online and get one of the REAP journals where we teach you how to walk through different passages of the Bible, but just start. Secondly, if you wanna know more about the formation of a biblical worldview, sign up for one of our equipping classes online. We've got a class called Bible 101. It starts on October 5th. Go sign up for that today. Uh, We've got a a class called Gospel and Culture, which will will show how a biblical worldview uh, interacts with the issues of culture today. It starts on October 12th, sign up today. Thirdly, hide the word of God in your heart. Uh, Let's be some people who commit scripture to memory. So this week, let's start small. How about you join me in committing Psalm 19 to memory over this next week? That's my memory passage for this week. I write it on a piece of paper, I put it in my car, I put it next to my desk, my desk, let's, let's, let's commit it to memory. Psalm 19, it speaks of the glory of the scriptures. Why don't you do that one with me? And then lastly, why don't you ask God by the power of the Holy Spirit now to show you where you are failing to submit to the authority of his word, where you're not believing that it's God breathed and that it's useful for you today, where you're rejecting it 
where you're rebelling against it. He'll show you. He'd love to show you, correct you, provide you reproof and rebuke, and then encourage you and comfort you with his wisdom that makes you wise for salvation. Friends, this book doesn't save us, but it speaks of the God who does. And in a world that is very confused and doesn't know what is truth or where we could get it from, Christians uniquely say, we stand on the revelation of God as contained in the Holy Scriptures. And we ask God to make us people of this book. May it be so. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it teaches us. Thank you for its usefulness even today. I pray that with my humble efforts, Father, you would, you would speak this word over your people afresh today. You would make them wise for salvation, that they would trust in the authority of your scriptures that they would repent where necessary, that they would enjoy the forgiveness and mercy that lies in the person and work of Jesus Christ and that we would all turn to you, humbled and determined that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we might be increasingly like the people that this book calls us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.